Okay, so let's take our Bibles and look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in a study continuing through 1 Peter. And uh, last week we just looked at the first three verses. Today we're going to look at verses 4 to 12. And, uh, you know, I I just want to say that as we look at today's message... Uh, I was thinking about things that have been in the news because what we're going to look at today kind of relates to some of the things we've been seeing in the news. And one of the big things that's all over the news is this idea of there's this law in North Carolina about bathrooms and gender identity and all that kind of stuff. And man, I mean, that'll get you fired up. And, And, you know, we've heard about a major... Uh, a department store chain that is allowing anybody who says they are whatever they want to be to go to whatever bathroom they say they want to go to. And as a father of daughters, you know, that's, that's disturbing to me. And uh, so those kind of things, I mean, it's just crazy. And, and there's a lot of interviews, man on the street kind of thing that are out there and people are asking questions. And, and man, I mean, sometimes you think about this and you think, man, are, has our society just lost their mind? I mean, have they just lost their sensibilities? I mean, what is it? What is it about our society these days that people seem to have just completely lost their identity? We're going to talk about our identity in Christ today, but I mean, there's a lot of people, I think, that actually struggle with identity issues. Maybe not to that extreme. Maybe they're not to the extreme where they're confused about the gender they were born with. But maybe they're just confused with their identity because they've been working a job for a long time and now they've lost their job and they got a lot of their identity based on their career. Or maybe they have struggles with their identity because maybe their home life is very difficult and depending on the struggles with their family or their parents or whatever, that they begin to wonder who they really are in this world. And when that kind of thing goes on, what we have is a lot of people that make a lot of bad choices. And, and they turn to areas of refuge that are not helpful for them. They might self-medicate. Uh, they might do a lot of different things, but it's because they don't really understand exactly who they are. They don't have uh, a good idea of that. They don't have a purpose and a mission in their life. They don't have something that they can focus all their energy to with confidence and security and, and joy. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a very firm identity, amen? Amen. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, has given all of us, thank God, a new identity. I mean, whoever we were before, whether good, bad, or otherwise, it really doesn't matter because in Christ, you are who he says you are. And that's what we're going to look at today. Because if your identity gets clouded, I mean, in today's world, there are a lot of competing thoughts and philosophies that actually are in my opinion, probably satanic. They're trying to keep you from realizing your true identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I've given the title today, Finding Clarity in Your Identity. And we want to clarify what God says about you so that you can enjoy the abundant life that Jesus Christ promised. So if you'll look with me, I'm going to read starting in verse number 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to go through verse number 12. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 I should have started, the Lord is gracious. To whom the Lord coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he's precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God 
in the day of visitation. There's a lot of very clear definition of identity in this passage. Let's pray and then we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, thank you as always for being the one who sets the compass in our life. You have come and you have changed us. You have given us a new identity. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And I'm so very thankful that I am not who I used to be. And sometimes I struggle with who I'm supposed to be. And so, Lord, my prayer today is is that you would give us the clarity that we need so that we can understand who we are and so that ultimately we can do what you made us to do and give you all the glory for it because you deserve it. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to see is that we need to identify with our Lord. Identify with your Lord. And so we're going to kind of jump around in the verses because there's some verses that refer to the Lord and His identity, and there's some verses that refer to us, and they kind of go back and forth. So we're kind of going to look at a few different, but it starts off in verse three, say, or in verse 4, excuse me, saying, to, to whom coming? To whom coming? And I just want you to get the feel as we start off that, that what we're dealing with here is not just, this is a continual coming. This is that we continue to come to the Lord day after day after day. This is not a situation where we came to the Lord in that moment of salvation where we repented of our sins and we asked him to forgive us. That, that's a wonderful thing. But the people that is the, the audience of this letter are people who have already done that. And we need to continue to come to the Lord over and over again. You know that's true. When struggles and difficulties come in your life, where are you going to go? You know, who are you going to call? You need to call upon the Lord. He's the one that gives us our strength. He's the one that we need to go to. And so the question that I want all of us to consider as we walk through this identity definition in the Scriptures is, do you continue to follow your Savior day by day? Or once you found Him, and check that off your list, have you noticed that maybe you kind of don't actively pursue coming to him daily over and over again. As we look at who he is, first and foremost, it may encourage you and refresh your desire to want to do that even more. But let me just say this. If you are going to continually come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to know exactly who he really is so that you don't find yourself dreaming up some false version of the Lord Jesus Christ and in your mind pursuing some Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible is very clearly defined for us. And we're just going to look at a few of the phrases that are used in this particular passage. But if you were to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 4, there are some people who get confused. There are some people who will call on another Jesus. And, and, you know, I can't help but think, and in my mind's eye, I just imagine it this way, as though the Lord is sitting on his throne in heaven high and lifted up, and some people in their minds develop some, you know, genie in a bottle Jesus, or some Jesus that is not the biblical Jesus, and they call upon that Jesus for help. I, I imagine in my mind the Lord sitting there thinking, he's not talking to me. I have no response. If he ever calls on me, I'll answer. You see, it's very important that we understand who the real Jesus is. And in this passage, he identifies it for us. The first thing we're going to look at, letter A, he's immutable. He's immutable. That's just another word for unchanging. Okay. In verse number 6, he's referred to as the chief cornerstone. That's a reference from Isaiah 28 and 16. But, but the chief cornerstone... This is, the imagery used is that of the foundation of a building. And so in a parallel passage written to the church, in Ephesians chapter 20, it says to the, to the church, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Notice Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. So, you know, I'm not in construction, but we just built a building out back. And when you're pouring a foundation and laying it, I mean, the, the corners are the key like putting together a puzzle, and then you got the corners, then you can put the sides, and once you got the sides, then you can go from there. Okay, so Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and as such, he is unmovable. Jesus Christ is solid. He is strong. He is unmovable. So Jesus himself, on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, 
verse 24 and 25 says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And then it goes on and contrasts the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand, and the storms come, and there's no foundation, and the, and the house falls down. And the idea is this, is that that rock is the firm foundation upon which you can build a life that will be abundant. The rock is the firm foundation that gives the stability that will allow you to weather through the storms that are blowing in your life time and time again. Do you have storms in your life? Are you struggling these days with things where things or people or situations and circumstances are, the winds are blowing and they're mighty and they're hard? If you don't have your firm foundation and the, and the clear identity of Jesus Christ is your rock upon whom the church is built. By the way, there are some people who want to say that Peter is the rock upon whom the church is built. But Peter says, no, Jesus is the rock upon whom the church is built. And Jesus himself said, no, I am the rock upon whom the church is built. Yes, Simon's name was changed to Peter, which means a stone, but that is not the stone upon which the church is built. Jesus is the foundation. He is the chief cornerstone. So as a result, we can understand things like Psalm 16, 8, which say, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Because he's unmovable, so should you be able to stand firm. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, we are to stand firm. And we can do that because we have a firm foundation. Jesus Christ is unmovable. He is immutable. He changes not. But in verse 4, it calls him a living stone. It calls him a living stone. And so he's not just some inanimate rock, of course. He's alive. He's alive. Of course, a solid foundation has to be laid in our lives first. Otherwise, you won't be able to build upward from there. Another parallel passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. They will either receive a reward or their works will be burned up. So in this case, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, but it's not just a rock. Jesus Christ is a living stone. And so if he's a living stone, then he must be like unto a pearl. Because a pearl is a stone that is made from living material. And so Jesus Christ is a pearl. He's like unto a pearl. And a pearl is a precious stone. And a precious stone is something we find that is, again, a part of the building up, the precious stone. And the, the, the issue of a pearl is referred to in several places in the Bible. For example, in fact, I, I didn't mention it, but we'll see it again, that Jesus is referred to, I mean, this issue of being precious, precious, Precious. It's referred to three different times in this passage, in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 7. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 and 46, we, we read about the different parables, and, and we get the story of the pearl of great price. You know the story. Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now, in the direct context, it's not directly referring to the pearl as Jesus Christ, but I want you to understand that when you find a pearl, a precious stone of high value, of great price, it says, then that pearl is worth sacrificing for. He sold all that he had so that he could get hold of that pearl. Well, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus is a living stone, and a living stone is a pearl. Now, you've heard of the pearly gates of heaven, right? I mean, I don't know if you've heard that 
One day, there was a guy who died and arrived at the pearly gates. St. Peter, of course, seems to be the one who always greets them. And he says to the man, welcome, come on in, and I'll show you where you're going to be staying. And as they're walking along, he notices alongside this golden fence along this walkway, there's a bunch of clocks. And so the man says to St. Peter, he says, what are all these clocks for? And the guy says, well, and Peter says to him, well, they're clocks for every kind of person in the world. And they click once every time you lie. So the man noticed that there were clocks for athletes and there were a bunch of clicks off of that. And there were clocks for teachers and there was a bunch of clicks off of that. And there was clocks for actors and there was even several hours of clicks off of those. And then eventually... They got to the place where they were staying, and the man looked at St. Peter, and he said, Well, I didn't happen to notice where are the clocks for the politicians. And St. Peter said, Oh, we keep those back in the office. We use those for fans. (laughs) So we know there's pearly gates. Revelation 21.21 tells us there's pearly gates. The new Jerusalem and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And we know that the gate to the city is a pearl. And Jesus Christ is a living stone, and a living stone is a pearl, and In John chapter 10, it says that Jesus Christ is the door. Do you see how this all fits together? John 10, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Which reminds us of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's the door. That's his identity. That's who he is. Now, can I say... It doesn't really matter if you believe that or not. Whether you believe it or not doesn't change one bit of the truth of the fact of who he is. But it's good for you if you believe it. In verse number 7 it says, Unto you therefore which believe, he's precious. If you have come to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have found forgiveness of your sins, if you have found that he has washed away your dirty past, and he has given you new life and breathes new life into you. He's precious to you. There's nothing in your life that you would trade for him. There's nothing that you could possibly do to repay him. In verse 6, it says the same thing, that he's precious, and it says, and he that believeth on him, notice, shall not be confounded. To be confounded is to be confused. You won't be confused about your identity. You won't be confused about his identity. Confounded also could mean ashamed. When you believe in him and you understand who he is, and you understand what he's done for you, he's so precious to you, you will not be ashamed of identifying yourself with him because he's done everything for you in ways that nobody has ever done anything for you. I had a conversation this week with a college student, and it was a, it was a great conversation. And in the course of the conversation, I, I, made, this, I made this comment to him. I said, man, I, I, I said, I really like you. You're a nice kid, but I want you to know something. I, I don't care who it is in this world. I said, I don't, I don't love anybody like I love the Lord because you or my wife, my mother, nobody, people I really love, nobody has done for me what the Lord has done for me. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. But if, for some reason, you don't believe the biblical account of who Jesus Christ is, then he takes on a different identity for you. I mean, you can make up your own version of Jesus, or you can simply reject the stone that the builders set. It can be disallowed in your mind. That's possible. Verse 7, the stone which the builders disallowed or rejected says, has become the head of the corner. 
the head of the corner. Now, there's actually a lot of cool stuff that we could study concerning the head of the corner. And if you wanted to really get into it, you would come to the conclusion that there is only one kind of a structure that the headstone is also a cornerstone. And that structure would be a pyramid because the capstone on the top of a pyramid is also a cornerstone. The thing that I want you to understand this morning without getting off on all of those things, which are very interesting, by the way, is I want you to understand that even the stone that the builders disallowed, many of the people said, I'm not buying that. I'm not interested in that. I've rejected that. It doesn't really matter. if You you can reject Jesus as who he really is all you want. He is still going to complete his building project. He is still going to finish exactly what he started. He absolutely is going to carry out his purpose and his role and his function throughout his life and throughout our lives. He's absolutely going to finish until he becomes the capstone, until he becomes the head of the corner. Your acceptance, excuse me, or rejection of him doesn't factor in one bit, not one bit. You see, he's the beginning and he's the end. He's the alpha and he's the omega. It goes on and it calls him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I want to refer you to Matthew 21 and verse 44 where it says, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That's the stone of stumbling or the rock of offense. You see, at Jesus' first coming, he's the stone that really... You need to stumble. You need to fall down. You need to fall down before him in forgiveness. Or else, at his second coming, he will fall on you in judgment. And so you have a choice. You always have a choice. And you can choose to believe the Bible account. You can choose to surrender to that. You can choose to give your all and your life to that. Or you can roll the dice. And play it your way. But he warns you. He warns you. So he's immutable. But that's not all. He's also holy. Let her be. He's holy. It says in verse 4, he's chosen of God. Well, that speaks of his purpose. The word holy, we looked at last week, it really means to be sanctified or set apart for a specific service to God. And so in Luke 23 and verse 35, it says this, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. So what do we see? Jesus on the cross and people mocking him. And they equate the idea of being the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, is the chosen of God. Verse 6 calls him elect. You go to the, back to the very first reference, Isaiah 42 and verse number 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. So the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen, the elect, as such, had as his purpose to die in our place and then ultimately to return, to rule over all of creation. So you have his first coming. You have his second coming. You can fall before him now willingly, or he will fall on you and grind you to powder. Well, in Jesus' service, there are included three offices that are ordained by God. There are three offices in the Scripture that are ordained by God. You have them in your notes. They're prophet, priest, and king. And what we see is that Jesus Christ and his ministry, he encompasses all three. Of course he encompasses all three. He was a prophet when he was on this earth at his first coming. He went about declaring the words of God, and he went about proclaiming the truth and offering the plan of salvation. Well, now, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he fulfills the role of a priest ever interceding for us from the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. 
Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So his service as the priest during the church age right now, while he is not physically here on planet earth, is to serve the role as the great high priest interceding on our behalf in front of a holy God. But that's not all because he's going to return one day and when he returns, he's not going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 16. And he had on his vesture and his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is not coming back ever again to have his beard plucked out and his face spit in and being beaten down by creation. When he comes back again, either you will have already decided to be on his side or it will be too late for you. And he will rule over all. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of all kings. Those are the three offices, and Jesus fulfills each and every one of them. And three times in this passage, he's called precious. Because it's precious that he brought us the word of God. It's precious that he intercedes on our behalf. And it's precious that he will put down all rebellion and establish perfect righteousness forever and ever. But he's only precious to you if you believe the testimony of his true identity. You cannot, you are not allowed to identify Jesus Christ as somebody that he is not and expect to get away with it and expect that, well, you know, you know the old German philosopher, Nietzsche, who came up with a famous philosophy saying, God is dead and we have killed him. Well, you know, later after Nietzsche died, God said, well, Nietzsche's dead. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I mean, you know, Nietzsche can say whatever he wants. He can make it up, and he, he can make up any story he wants. That doesn't make it true. And, and you can decide that, well, Jesus was just a good man. You can decide that he was just a prophet, but he wasn't the son of God. You can decide whatever you want, but that's not how the Bible identifies him. We have to believe how the, what the Bible identifies Jesus Christ as. And it's more than just, it's the right thing to do. It's because it forms your identity as well, and that's our second point. Identify with your role. We're going to switch to us now, because our role, obviously, is directly connected to his his identity, because we are in him. We are in him. And so we need to identify with that role by completely fulfilling his will for our lives. In your notes, I say this. Our identity is wrapped up in our identification with his biblical identity. Of course that's the case. We are Christ's body. We have to have our identity just intricately tied to Christ's identity, and that's the kind of thing we're going to see as we lay this out. So there's three important applications to our identity. The first is individual. Our individual identity is before God. And it says in verse 5, and it says in verse 9, it calls us a holy priesthood, and later on, a royal priesthood. Now, Jesus Christ is our high priest, and it says that we're in holy priesthood, why? To offer up spiritual, not physical, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So, That's a mouthful. We're going to talk about that for a second because now our job as a priesthood, all believers in Jesus Christ are priests of God. Not a special ruling class, not a particular group that dresses a certain way and has a certain job description. Each and every one of us, saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, have the ability to go directly before him in prayer, before the throne room of God, and intercede on the behalf of others. And there are sacrifices that the priesthood in the Old Testament would have carried out. And those were physical sacrifices. In some cases, they were, if they were performed rightly, they were acceptable unto God. If they were performed wrongly, they were not acceptable, and there was a punishment or a judgment that took place as a result. We have the responsibility, Christians, of being spiritual priesthood and offering spiritual sacrifices that God will accept. So now we need to know 
Which exactly are those? Well, we're going to do what we always do. We compare Scripture with Scripture, and we let the Bible tell us what they are. The first one is in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1, and it's your body. The first spiritual sacrifice that you need to offer is that of your body. You say, my body's physical. Well, it's, it fulfills a spiritual role. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living, not dead, sacrifice, holy, notice, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so if you will offer to God your bodies, notice it does not say offer to God your lives, because sometimes that's hard to define. He says, offer to me your bodies, your hands, your arms, your feet, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, your mind. Offer to God your bodies and live your life for his will. Live your life for all that he has for you. Take the members of your body and don't allow them to do sinful things. Don't let your feet take you where you know you shouldn't go. Don't let your hands participate in deeds that are dishonoring to the Lord. Don't speak words that would bring shame to his name. Don't listen to conversations that will damage the holiness that is in you. Don't look upon things that will destroy your soul. Give your bodies a sacrifice to the Lord, and that, my friends, is acceptable to him. It obviously rolls into what you do, and that's our second point defined explicitly, your good works. Your good works are acceptable spiritual sacrifices. Hebrews 13, 16, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for which such sacrifices God is well pleased. He accepts that sacrifice Do good. Take the members of your body and the resources that he makes available to you and use them for good. And that is a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Philippians 4, verse 18. Paul, the missionary, writing back to the church, one of his supporting churches, actually, one of his most beloved churches in Philippi. But I have all in a bound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And so Paul looks at the giving, the missionary giving, the sacrificial giving of an otherwise poverty-stricken church in Philippi. And because they wanted to sacrifice to partner with and and help the ministry of the Apostle Paul to get the gospel around the world. They sacrificed and gave, and Paul says, wow, that is, that is a sacrifice, that is a spiritual good deed that does not go unnoticed by your Heavenly Father. That is acceptable to Him, that is well-pleasing to Him, which, by the way, if we went back to Hebrews 13, 16, do good and communicate. That word communicate in your English Bible, is also used interchangeably. In Philippians 4, it has to do with giving, giving and receiving. So it's more than just what you say. We could say it this way. Money talks. Money talks. These are good works. These are examples that come straight from the Scriptures. Well, when you're living your life that way and your whole body is given to the Lord in His service and your good deeds and your resources are made available for His glory, well, then the last thing we're going to see is your praise. Your praise is an acceptable sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15, By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. And you know, when there's storms in your life and there's hard times and there's challenges and there's difficulties and things aren't going your way and life's miserable and you want to complain and it's hard to give thanks sometimes, isn't it? I mean, the Bible tells us in everything, give thanks. It doesn't say for everything, but in everything, give thanks. I mean, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so God loves it when you have the ability in full surrender to say, look, I don't understand it, I don't like it, 
But whatever it is, Lord, my life is hidden in you. And, and I know that you're going to work all things together for good. And I know that whatever it is you're doing, I don't even have to understand it. But I know whom I've believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. All I need to know is that I'm in you. And thank you so much for doing that. You look around and you think, well, what's up, Lord? That guy and that girl and all those people, they're not living better than me. And they seem to be getting away with everything. And I can't seem to get away with nothing. Well, really, it's none of our business what God does with his other servants. It's our business what God does with us. And he's got a plan for me, and I need to be focused on his plan for me. And we can offer him praise. And it's a sacrifice. You know, sometimes praising God is a sacrifice. Sometimes, listen, when things are going great, whoo, and we're shouting and jumping, and, you know, we're like those advertisements outside the businesses with the air that go in them, you know, and the guys that do, you know. Sometimes, you know, you, whoo, praising the Lord is fun, man. There's no sacrifice. That's just a blast. Do you like that? Is that pretty good? I don't know why I do stuff sometimes. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes life, man, has got you between a rock and a hard place. Can you praise him then? Can you offer thanks then? Man, that's what pleases him. Our role as believers of Jesus Christ is a priesthood. There are unacceptable sacrifices. But these are the acceptable ones. These are the ones that the Bible defines for us. It's our holy identity. It's a royal identity because Jesus is our king. We're in his family. So your individual role is to be dedicated to God. Your individual role, your individual identity is to be dedicated to God. Letter B, next we have a responsibility corporately. And corporately our identity is before the church. Our identity is before the body of the church. Verse number five, ye, old English for y'all, plural, ye also as lively stones are built up a singular spiritual house. Let that marinate for a second. Ye all, all of us are built together a singular spiritual house. Now, we've already kind of looked at this imagery because our identity is tied up in Christ's identity, so let's continue to develop it. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 and 10. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building, not buildings, building, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I've laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon talking about the building of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at verse 20, now in verse 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple, one temple in the Lord, in whom ye also, all of you all, are builded together for an singular habitation of God through the Spirit. And jumping back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a little further down, in those verses, starting in verse 16. Know ye not that ye all are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, all of you. Then it goes singular in verse 17. If any man, any particular one man, defile the temple of God, him, not all of them, him, the one who defiles the temple, the body is the temple. The temple is the church. It's the collective corporate gathering. If one man defiles the temple, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. We have a corporate identity. We have an individual identity to be dedicated to God, but we have a corporate identity before the entire body of the church. And yes, we each have an individual responsibility within the context of the corporate body. There's no question about it. And if one individual decides that they are going to take it upon themselves, God help them. If they are going to go after the body of the church, the bride of Christ. Okay, guys, track with me. If somebody comes after your bride, how are you feeling about that? 
The church is the bride and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could talk all you want about how Jesus loves us and we should never have fear. But I'm just a little nervous about going after the bride, man. I mean, I, I hope and pray that I never, I intend never to ever act in any way that would ever be contrary or hurt the body, which is the bride, which is the church, the corporate identity, the temple of God, the habitation of God for his spirit. Man, we could park here for about a month and talk about the critical importance of our corporate identity as a church. And, and I can't rip my chest open and show you my heart and make it clear enough to communicate to you what God has just done in my life, my little puny life, to understand the critical importance of the body together. And when people don't value it and don't see it as God identifies it, I can't help but think they just aren't paying attention because he's screaming at us off the pages of Scripture. Jesus is a living cornerstone, and we are lively or living stones built upon his foundation. So the imagery is a building, but it's alive. And his spirit lives in us, which gives us life. And all the stones need to be fitly joined together, as it says in Ephesians 4, to preserve the integrity and identity of the holy temple. So your corporate role is to be united with one another. Let me ask you something. Do you have your fit in this body, which is the church? Do you have your place that you know this is your place? And I'm not talking about that spot in the pew that you always sit in. I'm talking about a role where you fit. This is where I serve. This is what I do. This is my contribution to the edifying of the body together. If you don't have one, your identity is probably just a little bit confused. God takes this so seriously that he says he's going to destroy anybody who messes with that. Man. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3, he says to the church, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, sometimes you got to endeavor. It's not always easy. But we endeavor to keep it. It already exists. We just keep it. We don't need to create it. Jesus prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion in John 17, verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, the disciples. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one, Father. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And your mind might be going to places where Jesus reminded everybody that, hey, this is the way that the world is going to know about me is because you love one another. We have a corporate identity all together in one. And that's just a part of who you are. You don't have to believe it, but it's true. And if you reject it, if you fight against it, it just makes life harder for you, and it doesn't have to be that way. Okay, the last point is positionally. And positionally, we have another piece of the identity, and that is our role before the world. Positionally is before the world. In verse 9, it calls us a chosen generation, and holy nation, a peculiar people. This is a description of believers in Jesus Christ as a people, different and distinct from everybody else. We're chosen. We're set apart. We're a little peculiar. Verse 11 calls us strangers and pilgrims. In verse 10 it says, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God. 
You remember the first week we talked about how this has a very Jewish flavor and a lot of these references have Old Testament parallels. But without question, 1 Peter is written to a Gentile church because he says, in time past, you were not a people. That cannot possibly be the Jews because in the Old Testament, the Jews were a people. But now we're all a holy nation, a peculiar people, the people of God. We are children of God. And we're strangers and pilgrims. Which reminds me of a passage in the Hall of Fame of Faith, often referred to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, people who walk by faith. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And over in Hebrews 13, yet another verse, verse 14, For here on this earth we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. It's the new Jerusalem. It will descend from God in heaven. So like the old song goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Now, some people feel awful at home in this world. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so your positional role is to be separated from the masses. To be separated from the masses. That's, that's who you are positionally. You're a chosen generation and holy nation, set apart, a peculiar people. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. This is review for many of you. Very clear. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye, notice plural again, are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So we need to be separate and distinct from the habitual behavior of a sinful world, but not just separate from the world. We need to be separated unto the gospel, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 1, referring to himself, separated unto the gospel. So, look, you're not just supposed to be weirdo different. You're not just supposed to be like, you know, odd man out, goofy. You're supposed to be a non-participant in the habitual sinful behavior and the pressures of the course of this world that drives everybody to the insanity of the identity issues we talked about in our introduction today. You're to be distinct from that. You're to be separate from that. You're to be holy, not attempting, not working hard so that you can conform And I guess my question for all of us today is, are you secure enough in your biblical identity to be the man or woman who God made you to be? Or do you cave into peer pressure and identify with the culture? You see, God made each and every one of you, you. Think about that for a minute. He made you to be you so that you could be you for him. And if you're trying to be somebody you're not, 
If you're trying to be some hero, Christian or otherwise, who's going to be you? Because God's got that guy or that girl to be them. He's got you to be you. Be you for the Lord. That's what he's trying to tell us. Don't confuse that. Because you have to know who God made you to be so that you can do what God made you to do. And ultimately, that's to glorify him. Well, we're going to wrap it up with the last two verses because it talks about what we should do. And very briefly, in verse 11, it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you. If you're not familiar with that word beseech, it literally means I I beg you, I, I plead with you to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And we talked about this last week, and we're not going to do it right now, but again, the idea is, man, you've got to put aside some things. You've got to lay aside the old life and the old behavior, and yes, maybe even the old companions. You've got to lay some things aside that ultimately stir up lusts in your heart to desire things that war against your soul because ultimately they cause you to lose your true identity. And it goes on and it says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. That's more than just don't tell a lie. Again, the word conversation encompasses your conduct, your behavior. Having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they, the Gentiles, speak against you, and they will, as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, by the way, Glorify God in the day of visitation. So there's a couple of applications to that. The first is, is that you stand firm in who you are and praising the God who you know, and hopefully they get saved and God is glorified. Or there's the chance that they don't get saved, they don't care. And when they stand before God in judgment, they will ultimately realize your role, your testimony. God will remind them that he had many points of reference to try and speak into their lives, but they ignored them. And one of them was probably you. And your good works that you did for God stand as a witness, but they stand as a witness at their judgment, and it's too late for them. They will, people in that category, they will glorify God. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar kind of like Judas Iscariot. They will ultimately give God the glory, although it's too late for them in salvation. You see, either way, God is glorified. And you can rejoice in that because God used you to accomplish that. The results are not your responsibility. So the last thing I have in your notes is this. Do right and leave the results to God. Listen, you do what's right. It's never wrong to do what's right. You do what's right. And whether other people respond, whether other people repent, whether other people follow the Lord is up to them. You do what's right, and God will be glorified. That's who we are. That's who we were made to be so that we could do what we were made to do. And I pray that God clarifies your vision, your view of your identity and Christ's identity that will affect your behavior from today going forward. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father,